Tim, you mm-hmm. walk in and you're just talking about you got breakfast burrito, yeah. which makes me question, knowing your time in Europe, yeah. your exposure to breakfast burritos, if at all, I'm assuming a ton, a lot of assumptions over here. There's, there we go. Doesn't exist. There you go. I'm learning. Um, so then when you come to Chicago, the mecca of breakfast burritos, apparently, do you feel like your breakfast burrito you had was what you were looking for or how would you change it? Okay. So like, should I start now and yeah, record it? Oh yeah. Give it, give it to us. Okay. Lay it down straight. So, breakfast burrito, not a common occurrence in Spain or England for that matter. Hmm. Even in New York, Westchester, where I'm from, not a common occurrence, not something I'm, uh, I have with a lot of frequency throughout my whole life. Had my first breakfast burrito in Portland, Oregon in like 2020 or so. What? Yeah. And it was massive. We're talking uh, chorizo, yeah. roasted potato, egg, cheese, um, some salsa. It was fan- it was fantastic. I, I couldn't really move afterwards, yeah. but uh, it was great. It yeah. did the job. This morning, went for a breakfast burrito. Different type of breakfast burrito, much lighter. Got the job done. Didn't have the optimal ingredients that I was looking for, the chorizo, the potato, for example, which yeah, I think sure. is really next level. But yeah. this was just some um, bacon, Eggs, avocado, uh, pico de gallo, and some cheese, some melted cheese. Yes. In a much smaller tortilla. Took me about like a minute, minute and a half. Uh, A few deep breaths in between, but not much. (laughs) And and that was it, but it was great. It was great. A good welcome to Chicago. Those feel like two two good ways to gauge how successful a breakfast burrito is, is how long it takes you to eat Mm -hmm. and how much you can move after. Yeah. And I don't know... Like it could go both ways. If you can, if you can't move after, maybe it was great. Maybe it was too much. If you eat it really quick, maybe you loved it. Maybe there wasn't enough up burrito. It wasn't enough breakfast. So like, I, I don't know if there's an uh, an obvious better or worse on those scales, but those are two interesting metrics I'll throw out into the breakfast burrito discussion. It's contextual. It's Definitely, con- it's contextual. Definitely, yeah. you know, you need a spectrum. You can't. There's not going to be one that's always going to hit because it could be a warm day and you need a lighter one. Mm-hmm. It could be a cold day and you need a hearty one. You need, you need extra Papas Bravas in there. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, now I I think that something we should do is our next podcast because now we've just formed this new sect yeah. of the podcast is we go to Austin, the, Texas. The Burrito Boys. Yeah. This is the Burrito the Boys. Burrito this is boys. the Burrito. If you if you go onto um, uh, what's it called? Patreon. Okay, there we this go. is our Patreon spinoff. There we go. This is our Patreon spinoff. Is the the Burrito Boys right for bonus content? It's got a little bit of Anyways. the uh, barstool feel of like going to try pizza mm-hmm. in every city you go, whatever. Yeah, present does. But um, Austin, Texas. Have you been to Austin, Texas? I haven't. I haven't. But I actually was having a conversation with someone. It might have been last night. We were talking about Austin, Texas, um, because we had a friend that had been living there after college, and I was asking him because he was talking about how they're in a there's a struggle to build really quickly, for example, there because so many people are moving there, and I didn't really understand why people yeah. are moving there. And he described it as kind of like the liberal hub of like the South Central kind of of, of the country. Uh, but I guess it also has great burritos. It has great breakfast tacos. Breakfast and yes. tacos, and you okay. would assume burritos. I would assume burritos are yeah. great in Austin. 
But if you go when we go, maybe in a month or two, we'll figure this out. Yeah. While you're still on break, we got to get some breakfast tacos. They are because they those are like perfect because then it's like a it's not just like a one and done burrito. Burrito sure. is like this is it. It's make or break. Hundred percent breakfast taco. You can get like three of them and one can be like fine, but the second one kind of saves you and the third one brings you home or something. Totally. I had the thought today of I ordered the breakfast burrito and then for like two minutes. I think I was really hungry, so I was, like, doubting my decision. And I'm like, am I really going to need all of this? Like, I'm going to talk to these guys afterwards. Like, ah, but I don't want to be hungry. I'm not sure. Uh, and then I, as it was coming out, I was like, I can always just eat half. And then I took one bite. I was like, who eats half of a burrito? No. I'm going to crush this whole thing. Yeah. No, that would have been, if you came here and had <laughs> half a burrito. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, guys, actually, here. during the show, like, I'm just going to munch on this. Yeah, that would have yeah. been... That would have been questionable. That's also not even you right. You're just choice. holding it the yeah. entire time. <laughs> From the hey, base. what's up? Yeah, yeah, one hand, burrito, other hand. Dude, watch out. I'm holding a burrito. <laughs> yeah. You're, you, you made the right choice. Yeah. You made the right choice. And now we're here. And we are the footy fellas, plus special guest Tim Spencer here today, all the way from New York, from Spain, from everywhere else in the world. He wants to tell us about all of his travels and journeys. We actually chatted with Tim in a much earlier episode, I don't remember what number, number, but a while back, about coaching in Spain. And we've been chatting recently. There's a lot to, to update everyone about. A lot of new thoughts, experiences, possible championships. Won't spoil anything. Possible championships. And uh, we're excited to hear just where you're at, where you're at in life, Tim. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. It's an honor to get to come on uh, again. I feel like we've developed a little bit of a, a repertoire, and I, um, I appreciate kind of the opportunity to be the resident coach. You know, you guys do a lot of work covering so many bases within football, whether that's people that work in media, whether that's players, whether that's, I saw you guys have one with a referee, for example, you know? So to get to come back on and provide the coach's perspective, as it were, it's very fun. Before we get into it, how would you describe our podcast studio? Well, well for people that haven't watched our videos, watched our, you know, mm-hmm. followed us on the Patreon, the Burrito Boys Patreon, you also get studio shots and kind of like a <laughs> video tour, 3D virtual video tour, that kind of thing. How would you describe the studio? For me, the studio is fantastic. Uh, we got high ceilings. We have mm-hmm. uh, we have an open space, very breathable, you know. And uh, for me, obviously, you know, we we had originally connected because I also had my my own podcast for a bit during uh, quarantine. But this is the first time I'm doing a podcast where I'm I'm live with the people mm. that I'm I'm doing the podcast with, and so uh, as a guest, and so th- I think the studio is great. I'm I'm appreciative to to be in a studio with you guys. You know, it's a it's a different experience, and I think it's cool. A little little broader question, but uh, you also mentioned this is your first time in Chicago. This is this is how how is Chicago treating you thus far? Really good, uh, really good. I like it. I mean, I spent. Um, this previous Saturday night, for example, or Friday night, um, I was out in New York City in like the East Village, and that was very fun, but also like intense in terms of like architecture, people, structures. And now coming here, there's a much calmer vibe. Where yesterday, for example, I kept saying to myself, I, I don't feel like I'm in a city, hmm. you know. And that was before I had come downtown. And then coming downtown, it has a very similar feel to, for example, like Portland, Oregon, where there's this great suburban community surrounding the city center. And then you go into city center and you feel like, okay, there is industry here. There are people working here. This is a hub. Um, And then seeing the water, for example, um, it's really, really cool. One of my favorite things to do um, is since, I mean, we're practically all East Coasters here. Let's be honest. We all went to school out there. 
uh, is having friends from the East Coast come to Chicago, primarily people who are New York fanatics. And then I just say, like, yeah, but, like, look at Chicago, though. Like, look at Chicago. And every time, every time they come through and they're like, ah, it's actually pretty nice here. Like, I was not expecting it, but Chicago's it's a pretty good city. Yeah, and no one talks about it in the East Coast. I don't know if you ever no, heard, heard never, growing up, like, no one even mentions it. No, people talk about, like, going out west, for example. Like, you're either going to stay in New York, for example, where I'm from, or and you go to, like, a NESCAC school in that area, or you go to California, you know, some, something like that. But, I mean, the kid, one of the kids I'm visiting out here, uh, he went to Northwestern, and so he's been here now for, like, eight years or so, and... All last night, he was just spitting all of these facts about Chicago, about every street, restaurant. And I just remember saying to him, like, it's actually so cool that not only do you enjoy what you do, you enjoy your friends, you enjoy your community, like, you really enjoy where you live. And I think that's uh, that's not something that I've come across a lot in recent years, and I think that's a great sign for Chicago. Yeah, I love that take. It's beautiful. It's nice to have anecdotes. It's nice to have... Uh the people what the people say you yeah. know like on chicago's site yes tim tim spencer came yeah. through town in uh in may <laughs> five, five star review yeah five star review his friend said yeah Burrito, find burritos 3.5 Burrito, yeah. <laughs> all right so tim transport us from chicago to spain where okay. you've been for the last couple years coaching living it sounds like last time we spoke it sounds like they were very intertwined that a lot of your life a lot of your time was spent coaching or thinking about coaching um, how has your experience in Spain, both those things, the living situation, you might even be in a new apartment. I think we were chatting about last time. How's the living situation and the coaching situation just to kind of get us into it? How has that changed over the last year? Um, it's a good question. Uh, it, it changed in terms of location primarily, you know, going from living in Madrid, in the center of Madrid and commuting out to Leganes, which is like 40 minutes from the center of Madrid out, out to Leganes. Not difficult at all to moving to a, a smaller city, more suburban feel in Guadalajara, which is like a 45 minute bus ride outside of, uh, outside of Madrid. But whereas Leganes is like still within the community of Madrid, Guadalajara is in uh, the Castilla-La Mancha region. So it's like entirely different uh, culturally and like spatially. And so that change has been nice and it's been a change in terms of like the structure of apartments and um, the people that I've been around. And in regards to coaching, I mean, it couldn't be more different, you know. Uh, last year when we had spoke, I was still working in, in youth football, albeit with, like, the oldest age categories you could have in youth football. But this past year, transitioning finally into professional first-team football, um, I felt – when I started, I felt very out of place. It, it, was, a, it was a tough transition. Uh, one that came good in the end, of course, but very different situation. I don't know. If, I don't know if I realize you're coaching first team football. Yeah, that, that's huge. That's yeah. huge. What, what's the the club name again? So this past season, I was with uh, Deportivo Guadalajara, which uh, not, I mean, not to give away the spoiler, I guess, but basically last season we were playing in Tercera Ref and we got promoted through winning the league for the first time in the club's seventy five year history, and now we're in Segunda Ref. Um, so we got promoted this past season, and I mean, basically. The way it works in Spain is you have the first division, La Liga, and the Segunda B. And then below that, you have third division, which is split into three categories. And within those three categories, we just moved up from three to two. Um, and so in the most ideal world possible, if we get promoted two more times, for example, we're in Segunda B, which, you know, 
is a really big deal. It's like a very high level, uh, a lot of work to be done. But yeah, that's kind of like the on the map kind of how to categorize where where we're at and uh it's a it's a very cool club nice city it's the only it's like the team of the city Guadalajara has about like 80 80,000 um people there and the club's been around for a really long time and the club had spent time in Segunda Bay way back when but had found its way all the way down in in Tercera Ref through I think you know some problems with the organization of the club the people running it 10-15 years ago and and a new owner from Argentina had come in about three or four years ago and really poured his heart and soul into the club resources, uh, and it slowly improved. And, and this year we were we were able to take it back to where it, sh- it it belongs, kind of start that journey again. So yeah, it's huge. That's super exciting. What um and I mean obviously we want to know all about the season and, and your thoughts and how how you you guys were able to to pull out just what sounds to be a super successful year. Mm-hmm. Um, before that started, working in youth football yeah. and then transitioning to first team, what are some of the similarities, differences, um, compare and contrast, if you will, what it was like for you to shift, if anything, your coaching style? I mean, I think that uh, it's a question of like values mm-hmm. um, in the sense that if you want there to be similarities, there can be. The differences are very clear. But if you want there to be, if you want there to be continuity between youth football and professional football, there can be. You just have to work hard to maintain those, maintain those values and, and those beliefs. And what I mean by that is, in professional football, working with a thirty-year-old who's been playing professional football for ten years in Spain, who has a clear style of play, a position, an idea of who they are as a player, the notion of player development is very different and what i mean by that is the idea of i think traditionally in professional football at least in this level it's been one year you know i can't speak for by and large other regions other teams at least in what i experienced um whether a 30 year old 25 year old 20 year old they're very fixated on improving within the collective structure of the team of finding their role in our system and providing what they bring to the table to the best of their ability what I think youth football does is the opposite. Youth football is, as a coach, how can I help this player improve as an individual in order to thrive in a system that is constantly changing to suit individuals? Because we're trying to develop these players to get to a higher level. And if we f- have success and win as a result of our development, fantastic. Naturally, I think that will come. But if we don't, if they're improving, fantastic. Whereas in professional football, it's a results business. It just is. And so the time spent developing individual habits and behaviors comes second to team structure, organization, understanding of roles, for example. Uh, And that was the the biggest difference for me, given the nature of how I coached the last few years in in youth football uh, and was a difficult transition in terms of trying to find a way to help players grow where they're thinking of themselves they're looking themselves in the mirror being like this is who i am this is what i do that's great you know so it very different what's the average age of the squad we had a pretty young team pretty young team we had three or four players who were 30 31 32 uh we had one of our keepers was very experienced 30 36 year old 
but besides that, we had many kids, uh, many players, sorry, 19 to like 24, 25. Um, a star player for us this season, uh, River, for example, for, for example, his name was, he, uh, he was 19 and 20 th- throughout the year, and he was dominant in the, in the league. Um, and so a, a good mix, you know, of experienced players, but who hadn't really won anything. So we're very, very hungry. And youthful players, which are always hungry to win and to play. And then you, who's the you were the hungriest of them all. No, you prove yourself first season in. Yeah, just driving, just a driver of men. It was uh, it was a great collection of people, and I was very fortunate to be brought in in a staff that was already very established. You know, the other four coaches in the first team staff. This was their second or third year as a group, and so I kind of came in um, as that final touch that final piece at least in what I was uh, I, I was told by you know the the head coach Gonzalo Nega who who brought me in um, and so we were able to mesh and kind of help each other and I think uh, another difference between youth and, and professional football is in youth football you have like your coach and your assistant coach and here there's just much more flexibility in terms of um, role distribution where in youth football, like the head coach, the assistant coach, they kind of mix and match and do a little bit of everything. Where in the professional game, it's much more specialized. Like the head coach runs the training sessions, sets the training sessions, makes the tactical decisions. He is in control of the entire collective identity. The assistant coach is the supporter in terms of supporting the training session, following the ideas of the coach, making sure that the players are implementing everything that the, the first coach wants. You know, he also then does work with individual rival analysis where before the day before the game, he'll meet with our starting 11 individually and run through the potential starting 11 of the opposition. Then you have your strength and conditioning coach who makes every single warm up and deals with the players in collaboration with the physios, working with injuries, recoveries, those types of things. And then you have me and uh, my good friend, Chris, who are the analysts where Chris is analyzing the rival prior to each game, making a video for the whole team to watch, studying, analyzing how they're going to play, who they're going to play, their different patterns, in a way that, for me, was mind-blowing how detailed and just, it was fantastic work. And then I kind of created the role for myself of individual analyst, honing in on that player development, which we were lacking, um, and weekly having weekly meetings with players, reviewing previous game footage. So as we're getting ready for the next game as a collective, finding time with individuals to reflect on what has happened and you know, focusing on at least how it started for me and mainly how it still goes is just using positive psychology and like focusing on good behaviors and um, habits to continue with and to maintain while looking to improve and, and tweak some things along the way. That's amazing. I feel like we could talk about how the league was, the results, the stuff that you know you care about as a casual fan looking on paper, but Clearly, we're talking with a person who cares so much more about the persons um, more than perhaps the jerseys to an extent. Player development. Yeah. Man, I used to love watch. Speaking personally, I'm curious about you guys. I used to love watching film, not at a super high level, but even in college when they started giving us the game tapes. Yeah. People would make fun of me because, and sometimes it was just like watching us play soccer, which is fun. But usually they they started breaking it down in such a way you could watch all of your touches, you could watch the you know defensive moves, offensive moves, just the technology like sophomore year of college, and I would just watch those so much during free time. Right. Like it's right. just fun to watch the team play and and try to pick out little things that you can bring up in 
times that make sense. I'm curious for your take here. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I, I got like a severe, I don't know, there's got to be a term for it, but like FOMO, but because of technology. Yeah. And, and that is just the rise in accessibility of the cameras on your phones and doing like slow motion on your phone. I remember in high school being in my backyard juggling and having like one of those big cameras with like actual film and, and shit in it. And, and like filming it and then trying to like slow it down or whatever just to watch myself play. And then like kids nowadays just have it casually on their phone and can set it up and watch themselves. And so what it led me to think is, oh, like kids not only are better because, well, I imagine yeah. that look at the U.S., for example, the talent in the men's pool has become better. And I think there's so many factors culturally. We watch soccer a lot more. It's more ubiquitous. It's more acceptable. But then you also have tools to analyze yourself that you can do on your own. You don't necessarily need massive resources. In college, at Wesleyan, you know, at a college level, in one of the best D3 leagues in the world, in the world, what am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> Start talking Spanish soccer in your head and you're screwed by three or four sizes. I do love. I love Division three. I love Division three college soccer. That's where, okay. where it's at, though. Yeah. That's where it's at. See, even in Spain, even in Spain, it's below. They talk yeah. about Division three. Right. Like, oh, you guys catch the Wesleyan game. <laughs> yeah. We won the little three this tops. year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but my point is, and then my question to you. Uh, my point was, though, and you know, it felt like film was scarcely viewed, at least in my years. Maybe it picked up towards the end. Um, do to what extent do you feel like film, and then also, you know relative to perhaps other methods of reflection has been impactful in helping players that you've been managing? I think that... I think players like watching what they've done, you know? And I think that I draw a lot of inspiration from the NBA. And so what I mean by that is I look at someone like Kobe Bryant who was the most influential role model I ever had um, was the person that I looked to the most for inspiration and guidance in my life away from the people that I actually knew. And then I look at someone like Steph Curry, for example, who for many reasons, like from a physical perspective, maybe shouldn't have found the success that he did straight away in the NBA, for example, given what public perception was. And you look at players like that whose routines away from the game itself, their levels of preparation are so elite in terms of um, repetition and time spent practicing specific moments and situations coupled with film review. So um, prior to him passing away, Kobe Bryant came out with a show on ESPN called Detail in which he would basically do a 40-minute show just in, in, in incredible, pun intended, detail uh, reviewing the, the game tape of James Harden or LeBron or, or a player. And I think, and I, I share these two examples to highlight how I think this type of training has its space in professional football. But I, at least in my experience this season, it wasn't set up that way when I first got there. And so for me, I looked at a group of players that from day one I saw as the best in the league. I never had a doubt from even just the first game. And I'm a, I'm a very positive-oriented coach. From the first game, for me, it was clear, all right, we have the best players. Our job is not important as the player's job. We can do all of this work throughout the week, but at the end of the day, the players are going to play. If they have higher level of talent, preparation, culture, community, togetherness, we're going to be fine. We're going to win. We don't need to overcomplicate with all these changes, tactics. Uh, what we need is our players to be in a state of flow. 
what we need is our players to be comfortable with themselves and each other, trust their decisions, their other players' decisions, but through elite preparation. It's not an esoteric thing. It's very clear how you arrive to that point. And so, yeah, I took the idea to start doing review sessions with them. It started off very slowly, very basically, like very basic video editing software. I, look, I'd only ever been a head coach, assistant coach before. I'd never been an analyst, never done anything like this. When I got there, the head coach who had been a, a mentor to me for the previous two years and a friend of mine, he brought me in and was like, you're free, do whatever you want. I was like, what does that mean? A lot of freedom. But I didn't like that. Yeah. I didn't want that because I didn't know what to do. I'm like, but I've never worked in professional football before. How am I supposed to know what we're missing? How am I supposed to know what we need, how to help? I'm not going to speak for the sake of it. I'm not going to hold a meeting for the sake of it. I'm not going to try to get a player to change us to do this for the sake of feeling important. Like, So I waited and I was really quiet for the first few months and I just observed and I watched and I made one little comment here, one little comment there, but really nothing more. I didn't feel like it was appropriate. It was right. Then you fast forward to like the winter time and I decide to hold like a, my first meeting or two with a player where I just cut up every single action of their game. No order to it. Very basic. Just let's rewatch only your highlights and have an informal discussion like friends. Hey, what'd you think of this? What'd you think of that? What were you thinking there? Pause. Why do you think you made that decision? Oh, pause. I love this decision. This was great. And just celebrate them. Make them feel like, hey, I'm focusing just on you. For the, this five, 10 minutes, you're everything. You're the important one. You want to let something off your chest? You want to say anything? It's just me and you. I'm not going to say anything to anyone. It's free. This is our time. Our time. And slowly it, it built where I would decide the rhythm of the session. So like if I meet with you one week, I might not meet with you for a month. I decide when I think you need it. And if you're playing great, I'm not going to meet with you. I'm not going to bother you. If, you're, if you feel like you're doing great, I want you in flow. I want you feeling great. But then it got to a point where players would come to me at lunch and be like, do we have video this week? And I'd be like, if you want. <laughs> but that's what, and so my whole plan with the video, for example, and I know this is a very you know, long answer, but in terms of your question of kind of how it helps players and if players want it, I think for me it was about creating a space, less so what we're doing, more so the space itself of you can come here review your game in a way that's calming and like safe in a way that you're not going to get punished for things you know i didn't show a single bad clip for the first two three months i refused and it was it was a good source of banter amongst the coaches and they were like when are you going to show something i'm like well, i don't have to it took i really fought myself because then the players want to come meet because they know it's a time for positivity and once then you have the trust and it's clear, this guy thinks I'm great, because you are great. This guy supports me, because I do support you. Now then, it can be, all right, the first minute is not a mistake per se, but something to improve. And then everything great, you know, a balance between, between the two. And uh, I think it worked really well in the sense that I don't think this is a application that in the third division of Spain is, is prevalent. At the highest levels, what I do is like, nothing compared to what they do at the highest level. And I need to improve in that a lot. But at the lowest level of professional football, I think it was an X factor for us this season. By no reason, by, it was not the reason why we won.
but I think it helped players just feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more sure of themselves. They went in with a little bit more preparation and self-understanding of who they are and who they can be as a player. And I think, to your point, Eli, of uh, watching film in college, it's like you can only understand yourself so much through the experiences you have, but it's the same as writing a journal on a weekly basis just in your daily life. I think it makes a big difference in how you perceive yourself as a player, as a, as a person. What a great what a great niche you found on the team that you joined first year doing this in the business. Do you yeah. think the did that role substantially change your relationship with the coaches and the players once yeah. you got in the swing of things? Yeah, definitely, because I'm a player's coach, you know? And so when we had our closeout meetings with the coaches and we had to speak to each other and kind of give, like, it was really interesting, like, give a slogan for each person of how their year was and how would you rate yourself this year? I, I gave myself a higher rating with the players and the coaches. And I split my rating into two and was like, I need to improve with the coaches because I am a player's coach. Like, I feel as though I work for the players. That is my job. I am there for the players. But the coaching staff is also great. It's the first time I've really been a part of a true staff that's there for each other, that's friends, that wants to succeed together for a long time. And so uh, it was my first opportunity to not just be tight with the players, but to be tight with the players and the coaches. Um, but I think it just like the players and I are friends and I see that as an advantage. Why? Because if I'm friends with you and it's time for me to give you a harsh truth or something, it comes from a place of love and respect and understanding of you're just trying to help me. Why? Because you clearly care about me as a person. Whereas I think a lot of people in leadership see that as weak as it were, or not necessary of like, no, there needs to be separation. And I think this year holding this role allowed me to carry on all of the principles of work that I had in youth football, but at the highest level where like I'm not needed in, a, on a, in the sphere of tactics, for example. Like I'm down the pecking order in terms of opinions. I have a voice, always have a voice. I can always make comments about tactics, about what system we're going to play. But in general, it's the understanding of continuity and like our system is our system. It does work. We will change a few details here and there, but like by and large, you need rhythm and consistency on that front. So having a tight relationship with the players, I think was, was really crucial for them and, and for me to get established in the team. Why do you, one deep question there. Why do you think you're a player's coach? Not to, from their perspective, from your perspective, why is it so important or why does it feel so natural for you to be a more of a player's coach? For me, it's just second nature. Like I don't, did you always feel that way growing up? Yeah. Did you, did you I just prefer relationships with coaches where that was the case? Like, where do you think that? Yeah, I, I just think that um, in life and in football, for example, um, it's, the, it's the moments where someone comes to you before a match. I remember playing when we played together uh, that, that year at New York Soccer Club. I remember we were playing in, like, upstate New York against Blackwatch. And me and uh, a friend of ours on the team, we were talking about earlier uh, before the show, uh, Luis Zamora, we were like the two creative forces in the team at the time. Not that that's how I thought of myself, because again, like the narratives that we hold true in ourselves dominate the way in which we live. So at that time, I'm thinking like, yeah, I'm a good player, but like, I don't know, like I just like I was super chubby all of middle school. All of a sudden, I'm I'm like, like growing a little bit I don't feel as awkward like yeah I have a good first touch but I don't really know and yeah I'm on the team so I'm confident and my dad says I'm good but I don't really know and then before the game the coach pulls me and Luis aside and goes 
today I need you guys at your best because if you're playing well, the team is going to play well. We want you guys to have the ball. You're the creative forces. And it was a moment of just like, what? You think that about me? And you're the coach? Well, fuck. All right. It's true. Because that's how sensitive we can be to positive things, how open we can be to positive things, where I had a meeting. I mean, there's a bunch of examples from this season, but like I had a really long meeting this year with the, the striker in the team, Fran Santano. Unbelievable player, unbelievable person. He came second or third in the golden boot race. Nice. He was dominant in the beginning of the season and then went through a huge goal drought. And he was really affected by it and was really struggling on a personal level. And I went and had this meeting with him. I made this whole presentation for him about staying in the moment, mental stability, confidence, these types of things with all of these clips of him throughout the year. And a video of Kobe Bryant against the Charlotte Hornets in the playoffs in like 2012, missing his first 24 shots of the game and then making the last three to win the game. Kind of just like staying in it, staying in it. Which hurt him because he's a Hornets fan. Yeah, I know. It's tough for him to... It's super yeah. tough. You know, there's a huge community of Charlotte Hornets fans <laughs> in, in Spain. And uh, I think it was just what we spoke about. And I posed the question to him in the presentation. Um, like, who are you as a player? I see someone who at the time is leading the race for Golden Boot. I see a goal score. And I'd shown him in the video, we finished video with every goal he had scored that season. I see a goal score, but what do you see? It doesn't matter what I see. Do you see yourself as a goal scorer, right? Or do you see yourself as someone who cannot score right now? So I think to the question of being a, a player's coach, like I love football, but I love people who understand their potential and their power as individuals. I think in sports more than anything, that feeling can be so fickle. You know, you play one good game, you feel fantastic. You play one bad game, you feel like you are the failure, right? A lot of what we talk about in like our meetings is um, failure is an action, not a person, right? So like when I make a bad pass, I'm still an amazing distributor of the ball, but I'm allowed to make a mistake, you know? And these are things that to me are like second nature, but to players, it's like completely foreign. Like when they hear it from me, it's a look of like, what are you talking about? You know, in a, in a nice way, but so it, it's beautiful. You're you're paying it. I mean, paying it forward, not just out of out of process, but you just love. Like you feel that that now that you're in the coaching role, you want to bring that to players because you just believe in it so strongly. Yeah, it, I just think it's the basis of coaching. Like across all platforms, like you look at someone like Steve Kerr, who's a huge role model of mine. Like Steve Kerr in timeouts, for example, when they he's mic'd up, like he's not telling Steph and Clay and Draymond, like, you need to be positioned here and receive the ball here and do that. Sport is dynamic. He's trying to aid players stay in a state of flow because all of the preparations happen beforehand, you know? And so he's not telling people what to do, right? He's guiding them to a place in which they can take better decisions based off the interpretations that we've set as a group prior to the, the match. And I think a misconception people have of coaching, whether it's youth or professional, is I have to give you the answer. You're struggling, I will give you the answer. You cannot find it on your own. Or if I let you find it, you'll fail and we'll lose and we have to win. Um, and I get it, like professional level, like we do need to win. It is a results business. We lose, we lose our jobs. We win, we get new deals. That's just how it works. And I, I get that, but I can't separate development and winning from each other. I just don't think it makes sense, you know? Do you plan on showing the uh, Miracle on Ice 
hype video, pregame speech. That, like, do you have that, me up your sleeve that, that you're just waiting listen, to break out that for a specific speech, moment? The amount of nights in college we'd be out and my friend Jackson Benaroche would just be like, just go hurt. What, what's the coach? Herb Brooks. Herb Brooks. And would just start like reiterating that speech. It was, gentlemen, tonight. Tonight we skate with them because we can. <laughs> um, no, it's, that's, that's a beautiful reference. There's um, no, no ice in Spain. No, yeah, no, no hockey. What skate is. Yeah. yeah, what's ice? What's hockey? No, the, up, my, up my sleeve, I mean, no. I don't really have anything in terms of that. Um, I want to... I think, like, there's plans for preseason, you know. Um, like, another part of my role this year was mindfulness coach, um, where I had, like, I ran a weekly meditation session with the team, the last training uh, before the game. And then I do a private meditation with two of the, the starters who I became quite close with because th- they wanted to. Uh, and I showed it to them once and they're like, let's do it. Great. And so I want to do like a presentation, for example, in, uh, in the coming preseason of why we did that work. Because throughout the year, it was an amazing source of banter for everyone. I'd get into the center circle and I'd say my phrases and they'd all mock me and laugh. And it was it was genuinely funny and great. But we also still meditated and practiced practice mindfulness and when you go through a league and you only lose three games and you're in a title race for the entire season like those five to ten minutes of calmness laughter togetherness are really crucial not more important than the players and their performance but it's helpful and so in terms of up my sleeve i just want to improve that next year alongside the video and do more intentional mindfulness work for probably a bit more time and explain to them why we're doing it where this year was just like we're just doing it because like the head coach is like hey we're doing it because this is tim's thing like let's do it and now i can slowly be like hey you know why we're doing this right that was part one of two of our chat with tim spencer and there's a lot more to come it gets really interesting we started talking about transformational moments in our soccer careers all of us And then for him in Spain, what did it take to get his players and the entire club to the next level? How did he implement some new habits with players? And even more so in his career, what does he want to do next? What does he think he he wants to be doing five years from now? Is Is it a part of that community in Guadalajara? What does that community look like? And finally, how is he finding a more meditative mindset in life, especially after this hectic end of the season? Where's he at now? What's his what's his headspace like? So stay tuned for part two with Tim. You have very, like you have very good soft-spoken voice that's yeah. like perfect for this type of thing, but because of the sound, you probably lean a little bit. Okay. We can we can bark a little bit if you want to bark too. If you want to be louder, you can go for it. But okay. I don't think you should force it. Okay. Think, yeah. Talk, talk as you would normally do. Mike should pick everything up. And he'll just well. he'll let us know too. He'll, okay. He'll. Yeah, I'll later. give you some like <laughs> as, as you're going, you kind of like mid sentence. You kind of got to like bring it down. And just like each word, I'm like constantly flying yeah. in this radius. So yeah. I'm playing in Spain. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs>